Hey, y'all, and welcome to Least of These. I'm your host, Leah D. Things are going to be different for the next two weeks. I'm on vacation and going back to my hometown to visit family. But I didn't want to leave you guys hanging, so I reached out to a couple of my favorite true crime podcasters, and they so graciously gifted me and all of you an episode. This week, my friends Jennifer Dubasak and Lori Jennings of Dealing Justice will be filling in. Let me tell you all about Dealing Justice. In 2005, now-retired FDLE Special Agent Tommy Ray came up with the idea of putting unsolved cold cases on decks of playing cards in jails and prisons in hopes that the inmates would have information to help solve the cases. And it worked. Within three months of getting the cards into the hands of inmates in Florida, three cases were solved. The program has since expanded to other states and even other countries. Lori and Jen worked alongside Tommy Ray and the victims of families highlighting the cases on the decks and Dealing Justice was born. Today, they are bringing you the Queen of Hearts from the Massachusetts deck, the story of Teresa Corley. On December 4, 1978, 19-year-old Teresa Corley started the night out like most teens, hanging out and celebrating a friend's birthday. She left angry and was going to walk home, but she never made it. Over 40 years have passed and Teresa's family still fights for justice. Let's join Lori and Jen as they tell Teresa's story. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigator's ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasak. And I'm Lori Dennings. In today's episode, we learn about the horrific murder of Teresa Corley, a 19-year-old young lady found dead in a ditch off an interstate in Bellingham, Massachusetts. What started out as a night of partying and celebrating a friend's birthday ended in Teresa's death and a cold case that has led to years of grief, rumors, and uncertainty. Teresa's case is featured in Massachusetts' recently released first deck of cold case playing cards. As always, we would love to see the day where there are no faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we will continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. Help us deal justice for Teresa Corley. This is Episode 5, The Teresa Corley Case, Queen of Hearts, Massachusetts Deck. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to Bellingham, Massachusetts, where the outer belt of Boston becomes the central focus of murder and mayhem for one teenage girl. Teresa Corley was born on June 1, 1959. She was born into a big family and was seventh in line out of nine children that included eight girls and one boy. Younger sister, Jerry Hugh, tells us about the Corley family dynamics. 
my mother was essentially a single parent. My father had died when we were we were young. I was um, seven when he had passed away. She wasn't in our lives a lot. So essentially, my mother was a single parent from the beginning. But nine of us, Teresa was my older sister by two years. Uh, we lived in the city initially. We were um, living in Mattapan in the 1970s, 1972. And, and she was a brave girl and when I and when I look back on it I couldn't have been more than nine or ten years old Teresa decided that she wanted to go to Papagino's it's a, a pizza place one of the originals was in Boston back in the day and she, she said we should go to Papagino's and to get there we had to go take a bus and then we had to take the train I didn't really want to go on the train. She said we would be fine. We need that pizza. <laughs> and here we are. I'm like 10 years old. She's like 12, and we're at Papa Gino's. Now, now, here you are in a city, and you would think you wouldn't be as safe, but we were able to, to go do that. My mother, she wanted out of the city, and she decided that it was looking around to different communities, and she came upon Bellingham found a house, found a house that she could afford, and moved us to Bellingham, feeling that we will move into a much safer community. We had a good life in Bellingham. Living here, we had cows in the backyard, like a middle, just a typical middle-class family at that point. But the one memory of Teresa that I, one of my fondest memories is she got into horseback riding. And she one day said to me, why don't you come with me? And this is something that we could do together. She brought me to a few of the lessons. You know, it was just that opportunity really to be sisters and having some, some enjoy, you know, hobby that, that we could both enjoy together. When you're the younger sister, you look up to your older sister to be your guide. Things that she had gone through, I knew I could go to her to ask for her advice. We all had a sense, even at the time, and I don't know if it's because we were kids from a single-parent home, but we all looked out for each other. My name is Diane Petrantonio, and Teresa is my sister, 11 years my junior. Well, Teresa was, was so kind, you know, is how I remember her. She was so much fun to be around. She was always happy. She didn't seem to have any cares in the world. Teresa attended Bellingham High School, where she was an accomplished student played volleyball, and was a thespian in the drama club. Teresa was fun, bubbly, and smart. Again, here's Teresa's sister, Jerry. She was an honor student. She had kind of close friends, but I think because we moved to Bellingham so late, there wasn't like a best friend situation with her, like girlfriend-wise. Like she had a lot of, I would say like casual friends, like people, like a girl on the volleyball team that, you know, maybe they might go to a party together and they might have gone to the movies together. But then soon, like I would say probably late junior year into the senior, her senior year, she started hanging out quite a bit with Pam and Alana. And I'm not sure if it was that's when they kind of met up somehow. And I didn't like them. I, I really didn't like who they were in high school whatsoever. And I had a sense of this isn't good. I would see them together like in the cafeteria and Teresa didn't fit with them in my mind. Teresa had goals and one of those goals was to graduate from college. But college wasn't an opportunity that came easily for everyone. 
especially in the 70s. Really nobody in our family went on to college. We didn't know how to go about it. You know, my, my mother was a single parent, and back then it's like, well, how do you get to college? And in high school, you have a guidance counselor, but they would, I know for myself, they would steer you in a different direction that you didn't even want to go. So I could see where it would easy, easily people could get lost. But Teresa had this idea that she wanted to go into the medical field. Teresa's grades weren't her concern, but the financial burden was. She knew she had to pay for college herself, so getting a job was the obvious answer. So her very first job was at McDonald's. That was like her, like when she was probably 15 years old, she worked at McDonald's because she had followed my other older sisters. My, my sister Linda worked at McDonald's, Karen worked at McDonald's, then Teresa worked at McDonald's, then I worked at McDonald's. So it was all like, okay, how do we get into the into the job world? Well, we, we work at McDonald's. Like most teenagers, Teresa had a string of jobs in the area. And one of those right after she graduated high school in 1977, was at the Star Market, where she met a young teenage boy named Bob Ward. Bob is now an accomplished journalist and vividly recalls the fond memories of working with the young cashier, Teresa Corley. My name is Bob Ward. I'm a reporter for Boston 25 News in Boston, Massachusetts. In 1977, I got my first job at a supermarket here in Franklin, Massachusetts. And at around the time that I got hired, there was a pretty young woman who was a little bit older than me, who was also hired, and her name was Teresa Corley, and she was a cashier. Here's this very attractive young woman ringing up the cash register, and I would bag groceries, and I would go over to Teresa, and I would just start talking to her. We're all in this together. We're all in our first or second job, and she was just an interesting person. You know, we would go outside after work and hang out in the parking lot and just kind of talk about, you know, things that are going on in our lives. Um, you know, it, it was something that we all did. And it was a community of young people all trying to find our way, trying to be adults for the first time. And Teresa Corley was part of that. I just remember her being very funny, uh, very interesting. She was just a wonderful person. And that's how Teresa Corley first entered my life. Teresa eventually left her job at the supermarket for a job at a local factory called Penthouse Sales. It was a jute factory that made rugs and purses and shoes. I don't know if the money was better or if just more her, of her friends were at that company. At the time, it was a place where a lot of the 19, 20-year-olds from the town of Franklin were. And also two of her like better friends from high school, Pam and Alana, worked there. So I'm not sure if that was what the attraction was for her to go there. In a small town, everyone knows everyone. But these were girls that Teresa's family didn't know. And little sister Jerry didn't like the vibe she was getting with Teresa's friends. And it, and it was that premonition. I just feel danger with her, with Cam and Alana. I feel danger. Teresa was working and attending Holliston Junior College in Holliston, Massachusetts, studying to be a medical assistant with dreams of ultimately becoming a pediatrician. She also began dating her boyfriend, Rick. Monday, December 4th, 1978. Teresa worked that day at Penthouse Sales and got off work at 7 p.m. Jerry remembers it well, as it was the last time she ever saw her sister. She was with her mom that day as they went to Teresa's job to pick her up. The family only had one car, so mom usually took Teresa to and from work. But this night, Jerry remembers Teresa coming out to the car to tell their mom she didn't need a ride home. 
And I remember she was wearing a, a like a black concert shirt. And she, she said to my mother, um, you know, I'm not going to come home. I don't need a ride home. I'm going to go to a, a party with some of my friends. And so my mother said, oh, okay, but don't be late. And she said, no, no, I won't. And she said, but tell John to remember I haven't forgotten his birthday. I'm going to be taking him to a concert. She got, I forget what tickets she got to a concert, but she was going to be taking my brother John to a concert. And so my mother said, oh, okay. But it was December 4th. It was John's birthday. And then she went off to her party. It was a weekday, and Teresa had school the next day, so Jerry didn't think her sister was going to be out that late anyway. It was a night for celebration. Teresa and her friends were out drinking and celebrating her friend Lisa's birthday. Back in 1978, the drinking age in Massachusetts was 18, so everyone in the group was of legal age. The party started at a friend's house in their apartment, and then around 10, 10.30, they all walked over to a nearby bar called The Train Stop in Franklin. The core group here was Teresa, Alana, Pam, and Teresa's boyfriend, Rick. Around 11.30, Teresa got into an argument with her boyfriend. It was rumored Rick was talking with an ex-girlfriend, but whatever the case, Teresa was mad and wanted to leave. Drunk and angry, Teresa stormed out by herself to walk the five and a half miles to her house. But Teresa never made it home. In the dark winter night, as Teresa was trying to make her way home, she was picked up by a group of men. Teresa was known to hitchhike, but it's not apparent if she was actually hitchhiking at this time, or if she got into the car with the men willingly, or if she was forced into the car. Either way, she ended up in the car with these men, and instead of them driving her home to Bellingham, they drove her to an apartment in Franklin in the Presidential Arms apartment complex, where Teresa was sexually assaulted by one, if not all, of the men. December 5th, 1978. Teresa managed to get out of the apartment in the early morning hours around 4 a.m. and once again tried making her way home. Around 4.30 a.m., Teresa was seen by drivers on Route 140 hitchhiking. She was wearing one of her own shoes and a male shoe on the other foot, presumably belonging to one of the men from the apartment. We know this from eyewitness accounts and because there were two Garlic Farm truck drivers who became part of Teresa's story. The first driver was in his private vehicle on his way into work when he saw Teresa. She was leaning against a guardrail on the side of the road. He picked her up and agreed to drop her off outside the company's front gate. The second driver was coming out of Garlic Farms in his delivery truck when he saw Teresa outside the gate hitchhiking. Now, picking up hitchhikers was a no-no, but the driver sensed that she was in distress and offered her a ride anyway. He later reported the smell of alcohol on her breath and told police that she was, quote, mad as fire. The driver also told police that Teresa confided in him that she had been sexually assaulted. At around 5 a.m., the driver dropped Teresa off in front of the Bellingham Police Department, but Teresa never made it into the police department that morning. At 5.30 a.m., the last reported sighting of Teresa was by a group of men carpooling to work who said they saw her walking past the Dairy Queen that was less than a mile from her home on North Main Street in Bellingham. She was still trying to make it home. Back to safety, back to the people who loved her, back to her warm bed, 
where she could sober up and regroup. But that, unfortunately, was not how Teresa's story would end. Meanwhile, at the Coralie home, Teresa's family was waking up and realizing that she had never came home. Older sister Diane says no matter what, if they were going to be late, the kids always knew to get to a phone and call their mother. They moved from a pretty rough area to Bellingham, so my mother was always on them. Don't ever not call and tell me where you are. And they, they were pretty responsible about it. You didn't not come home and not call because it was a dangerous world even back then. But she didn't come home that next day, you know, like of so many families. We know, we know that something's wrong right off the bat. We know our people. We knew my sister. She would not have not come home. So we panicked right away. My older sisters were called. They came, they came to the house. We called friends. Teresa's sister, Diane, remembers. I didn't live in Bellingham at the time. And um, my mother called me and said, Teresa didn't come home last night. What do you mean she didn't come home? She didn't come home. So I got in my car because if Teresa didn't come home, there was definitely something wrong. I got in my car and went to Bellingham. They contacted the police to file a missing persons report. Family and friends started searching for her immediately. Here's Teresa's sister, Diane. There was somebody from a a news station going to televise a plea from the family. If they know where she was or her whereabouts, please call. And I remember we were all sitting on the couch when uh, we did that. Jerry's mother had the kids put up a Christmas tree. None of them wanted to, but it was her mother's way of perhaps keeping them busy or pushing on while they tried to find Teresa. Jerry says the 6th and 7th of December were a blur to her, and she wishes she could remember exactly what day it was, but she does have a vivid memory that while her sister was still missing, a strange car pulled up to her home. I remember just like our Christmas tree was up already, and I'm in the window, and I'm looking out the window waiting for her and just thinking she's going to come in any any minute. And it was really weird because a car had pulled up. It was a, like kind of a maroon-type car. And in the back, it, it had like a sloped back window. And I saw like a blanket, and I thought there was somebody wrapped in a blanket in the back seat. And I thought, oh, maybe she's home. But then the car took off. And I always thought she would be found with that blue blanket. But no one was bringing Teresa home in a blue blanket. As quickly as that car had pulled up, it pulled away, heading north on 126. To this day, Jerry doesn't know who was in that car. December 8, 1978. Around 4.30 p.m., a call came in to the Bellingham Police Department from a man who claimed to be John Burlington, a businessman headed home to Connecticut earlier that afternoon. He had pulled over on the side of the road to go to the bathroom and saw a dead body. There were no cell phones back in 1978, so he waited until he actually got home to report it. Police were dispatched to the location. Soon after police received that call, and before they even arrived at the location of the body, a local man walked into the Bellingham police station asking if it was Teresa Corley's body that they had found on 495. The police didn't even know how someone would have known that a body had even been located yet. Three days since she was last seen alive in front of the Dairy Queen, Teresa's naked body, lying on her back, was found down an embankment in a ditch quite a ways off the highway on the northbound side of Interstate 495. Some of her clothing was found next to her, but not all. 
That evening, police went to the Corley home to notify the family. Here's Jerry. I just remember the evening, there was a knock at the door. My mother opened it and there was a couple of um, town cops. My mother knew one of them from church or at least knew his wife. And then I, I didn't hear what they said, but then I just heard my mother screaming. And we were told that she had been found. Jerry says she will never forget her mother's screams that evening. They were heart-wrenching. And if that weren't enough, police then took Teresa's mother down to the morgue so she could identify her daughter's body. Teresa's mother had to see her beautiful 19-year-old lifeless daughter just as she was left on the side of the road. Teresa's cause of death is listed on her death certificate as asphyxiation by strangulation with a ligature, homicide. I didn't know the full details. It was just kind of surreal because I was getting details from the television because it was covered by a lot of the local news, and I, I knew she had been strangled. She, she was naked when she was found, but what was beside her, there was no shirt, I'm told, um, but there was a jacket and a pair of male jeans thrown there. But at that time, I don't know about other families, but I think I, I went someplace else in my mind. I, it, was, it wasn't real to me. Teresa's family was devastated. The small, safe community of Bellingham shattered. Bob Ward attended Teresa's wake and funeral. I remember walking into that funeral home and being really, really nervous and scared. You know, I was going in there and I was seeing this young, beautiful woman. I was seeing what was left of her. So we walked in and it, it was just awful. I mean, people were crying. Uh, people, other people were speechless and had absolutely no idea what to say, how to act. What are you supposed to do? Teresa Corley's casket was open, and she was laid out. She looked beautiful. But, you know, I saw a mark on her neck. I saw uh, a line across her neck, along with another mark that was, like, right in front of me. And I just remember kneeling at the casket and saying a prayer for her and offering my condolences and just leaving. And it, it, it just stopped me. It just stopped me cold to be thinking that I was at a wake for this girl that I knew who I was friendly with. Um, and now she's not just gone in a car accident, but somebody did that to her. Teresa was buried in her prom dress. The community and family would not rest because there were no answers on who killed Teresa Corley. So many rumors, so many people talking but no one is talking to the right people for investigators to charge the person or persons responsible for sexually assaulting and killing Teresa. Police have always been tight-lipped about their investigation. Bob Ward was only 16 when Teresa was murdered, and he never knew any of the details of her murder. He went on to become a reporter, and in 1999, when his station, Boston 25, started a new series called New England's Unsolved, Bob wanted to cover Teresa's case. He began investigating the death of his friend, which brought new information to light. I wanted to know what the police knew. I wanted to know who did this to Teresa Corley. What were the circumstances? How did she end up dead on the side of Route 495? 
Was she strangled? Who's responsible for this? Why is this case still unsolved after, at that point, 21 years? How is this even possible? That's what I wanted to find out. There was a new district attorney coming into Norfolk County. So the head of CPAC, which is the detective division within the state police assigned to that DA's office, briefed the DA, gave him a written out set of talking points of what they wanted out there, what they knew about the case. We sat down and did our interview. The remarkable thing about that set of talking points is that it set in stone the times that Teresa was seen the night she disappeared. It's all memorialized in this document. And after the interview was over, the DA just gave me the document. That was pretty remarkable. And I don't remember that information ever being out in the public domain. That was a first. And I was kind of blown away. I'm still blown away. I never get that kind of information from the police. They're very guarded, very guarded. But right from that very first story, they put that information out there. So that's, you know, that's 1999. So that's 21 years after the fact. An anniversary or a significant event is what brings news to cover a cold case. Bob Ward saw another opportunity to bring Teresa's case to the forefront when Teresa's mother sadly passed away in 2013. When something like that takes place, that's when people start talking again. And that's when, in a case like this, where there's a homicide, and I know how strongly the family feels, that maybe that would be an opportunity to put a new story out there, you know, talk to the police again, try to get some new information back out, and see what happens. That second story, that well, it wasn't the second story, but that, that next, I'll call it, that next milestone, the Wingland's Unsolved story that I did, I was absolutely blown away with the information they gave me. First time it was ever released. So I went into it, talked to them, and I said, let's, let's do this. I said, there are rumors that you've lost all the evidence, that there was a fire, and everything's gone, and that's why this case isn't solved. I said, first of all, is that true? And they said, no, it's not true. But here's what we're going to do. We, we're going to release to you new information we've never told anybody. Oh, and by the way, would you like to see the crime scene photos? We can show you those. You can't record them, but we're, we're going to show them to you. You can describe them on the air. Last time I saw Teresa Corley, she's in an open casket at her weight. Now I'm seeing crime scene photos from 20 years earlier, naked on the side of the road the way the police found her. To say I was stunned and shaken to my core is an understatement. But I have, I have a job to do now. You know, when I was a kid and I, I was there, I'm just, a, I'm just a kid. You know, in 1978, when I'm at her casket and I'm looking at her and I can see the wounds on her neck, you know, I'm a kid and I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. Now I'm an adult, I'm a professional, and I'm looking at these pictures, and I can't believe my eyes, but I, I can't show any emotion. I've got a job to do. And, you know, it, I, can, I can still see it in my, in my mind's eye. I can still see those pictures, and it's, it's just truly awful. It, it was, they were black and white, 8 by 10 photos, and Teresa looks like she's sleeping. It doesn't, she looks like she's asleep naked on the side of the road. That's what it looks like. And on her neck, did the mark that I saw in the open casket. 
So then, you know, you kind of have to, you know, I'm looking at these pictures and it's like, you know, and my mind is going in a thousand different directions, just thinking about what, what I'm looking at and can't believe my eyes. So then I said, okay, so what's the new information? And that's when they told me for the first time, the whole John Burlington story. And I remember walking out of the DA's office and just, I, I, I just couldn't believe what I saw, what I heard. And even today, as I look back on it, I think, well, shouldn't all this have been enough to to make an arrest, go after the guy who walked into the police station? I mean, shouldn't that have been enough? But clearly it was not. It's a lot more complicated than that. In November of 2015, Jerry also began looking into things herself and asking people questions. So initially, I was told it was three men that came along and picked her up. But, you know, I've also heard directly from one of the men that picked her up. He said, we saw her walking and this other guy in the car by the name of Mike saw her, said, I know her, I wanna pick her up and have sex with her. So it was now four guys in this car. It was a guy by the name of Steve, his stepbrother, John, David, and this guy, Mike. So whether she got into that vehicle willingly or not, I don't know. And I'm not even sure where they kind of picked her up, but the place they brought her was an apartment right on Route 140 in Franklin. So what I was told is they got there, she realized it was all guys. And she immediately, this is from firsthand from Steve, said when they got into the apartment, she realized it was all guys. And then Mike started to make comments that was being obnoxious is what Steve says and starts to make obnoxious comments about, you know, and at her kind of sexually. So the guys tossed Mike out of the apartment because he wouldn't leave her alone. But then what Steve says is somehow she ended up going into a bedroom with David. And when she came out, David had scratches on him. And then Steve said, for some reason, she said, if you just let me go, I'll have sex with all of you. And so Steve was baffled as to why she would say that. I'm not seeing my sister getting pissed off at her boyfriend saying, I'll show you and going to have sex with four guys. I'm not seeing it. I'm thinking just for myself, you're pissed at your boyfriend, you hate all men. So I'm told Mike is, Mike's banging on the door trying to get back into the apartment. They're not letting him in. I'm not sure what happened to Mike after that point, but I know like in 2015-16, I called his home and I got his father on the phone. And I asked his father, he was living with his father still, and I said, I'm just wondering if I can talk to Mike. And the father said, what does this pertain to? And I said, well, my sister was murdered. Because, you know, that was over 30 years ago. The police have already talked to him a long time ago. Let it go. And I said, but my sister's dead. And I just wanted to talk to your son about what happened. And then passionate side of me says I should leave the guy alone. And I, I don't know. I would like to hear what he has to say. And I would like to know if the state police have finally contacted him, interviewed him. I'm not sure. But the father, according to the father, he was, at the time, he was, he was interviewed, and that was it, and I should just let it go. I'm, I just really feel I am not getting 
the the gist of her murder whatsoever. Um, and, and people's, I don't know people's motives for some of the things I've been told. You know, or it could just be we're at like the 43-year mark. And at the time when I was asking, we were 37 years later. Is it just all the rumors now have emerged? Jerry was getting plenty of information, but separating fact from fiction became overwhelming. She was looking for hard evidence. She fought to have her sister's body exhumed. In May of 2017, Teresa's body was exhumed. Bob Ward was there to report. Searching for new clues in a decades-old unsolved murder. Boston 25 was theirs. The Massachusetts State Police exhumed the body of a Bellingham woman murdered nearly 40 years ago. The state police spent two hours at Teresa Corley's grave this week collecting evidence. We know they retrieved nearly all of Teresa's fingernails. And with new advances in DNA technology, this could lead the way to a big break. Teresa Corley's killer may have thought the secrets of her murder were buried long ago. But on Wednesday, Boston 25 News was there when the Massachusetts State Police exhumed Teresa Corley's body, a move that may finally identify her killer. I was at the cemetery when they exhumed her body. And I'd been privately pushing for the exhumation for a long time. And it was just chilling to, to be there and to watch that casket come up out of the ground. Jerry was also at the cemetery that day. We could be there, but we, we had to be at a distance, of course. And then after um, they did what they needed to do, uh, the, they came over to us to let us know that they did take a sample of her hair and that they were able to actually get nine and a half fingernails. However, the coffin was wet. And I could see it when the body was being, well, I mean, I'm sorry, when the coffin was being lifted out of the, the cement block that they put it in, you could see water leaking out of it. And the coffin looked like it was in pretty rough shape. The results from the 2017 exhumation have not been released, or the family doesn't know if it's even complete at this time. DNA technology has advanced over the years. In 2019, the genes found by Teresa's body were tested, and the DNA matched one of the men who was at the apartment the night she claimed she was sexually assaulted. Again, here's Bob Ward. The genes came back to one of those three guys in the apartment, so they never got charged with anything, those guys, which I think is one of the big mistakes. All right. So you had sex with this girl that you knew nothing. You didn't know her before that night. So it's found on the gene. OK, stuff happens. Right? We all know that. We're adults. But the rest of the story is Teresa herself is found uh, as she's hitchhiking. She put on one of her shoes and a shoe that belonged to one of those guys. And then you have the truck driver says she was very angry. He could still smell the alcohol. She told him that she was sexually assaulted. You've got her own words. Now you have evidence. Now you've got his DNA scientifically matched to the body of a naked girl on the side of the road. And the other thing, too, is that when um, people leave the state in a sex crime, after a sex crime, the statute of limitations stops and tolls. So I remember that from covering the priest scandal. They went after some, you know, pedophile priests decades later because they got moved out of state. And so the minute they left Massachusetts, it, you know, the clock stopped, starts again when they come back. And some of these guys, these three guys, I think their main guy has left the state within a couple of years. And so they yeah. could go forward with a rape charge if they wanted to like that. I, I, I wish they would play a little fastball with them and go high and inside on them, you know. 
Sadly, this information did not lead to an arrest or a publicly named suspect. Jerry explains. I'm told ejaculation doesn't mean penetration, doesn't mean murder. And but then I'm told, too, they haven't subsequently gone back to interview him. As of 2022, Teresa Corley's case is still unsolved. So now where it stands is I am told that they have other items that they can test. I'm told they have the shoe, the the male shoe. Uh, although they only show me a picture of it, it would be interesting to see whose shoe that is if if they have it and they contest it. The men in the apartment have never been charged with anything concerning Teresa's case. Again, here's Bob Ward. I think in Teresa's case, there's a lot of victim shaming. I've heard it said that well, Teresa shouldn't have been drinking. She shouldn't have been out that late. She shouldn't have hitchhiked. Well, that's ridiculous. This was a 19-year-old girl. You can't give these animals a pass. And I say animals in the plural because I believe there's more than one person involved. There were the, the so-called men who picked her up and sexually assaulted her in the apartment. And then there's the suspect who walked into the Bellingham police station asking if they had found Teresa Corley before anybody even knew there was a body on the side of the road. And then there's whoever was behind the whole John Burlington ruse. So right there, you've got about three, four, five people involved, and they all have families. And those so-called men all grew old and were allowed to live into their old age. Some of them are still alive. And they were involved in this disgusting thing that took place in Bellingham. The blame is on the people who did this. Teresa Corley, the night she was taken, was simply trying to get home. That's all she wanted. She wanted somebody to give her a ride home. And somebody came along and took things in an unfathomable direction that still, 40 years later, I cannot come to terms with. Teresa's story touches people in ways we can't really imagine. And the police do their jobs in secret. They don't want everything out there in the open because they're trying to solve this case. It does piss me off to think that this girl was strangled and left naked on the side of Route 495. And here we are 40 years later, and we still don't know definitively who did it. It just pisses me off. And I think that has more to say about the people who actually know something who are still protecting the secret all these years later. Here's Teresa's sister, Jerry, again. They took a ligature and they squeezed the life out of her throat. And it takes a good six minutes to do that. So you know there is evil out there, evil. But the one thing I'll say about Teresa, the reason why they had to do that is because she was fighting. She, and I have to believe she put up a good fight and whoever did that to her, at the time at least, felt her wrath. And that's why I think the guys in the apartment, I think they felt they had to kill her because she was gonna be coming back. She wasn't gonna let them let them off. That's just who we were, who we are as a family. You know, you do me wrong and I'm gonna find my way to, to get my justice. On Teresa's birthday, June 1st, 2020, Sister Jerry completed Teresa's walk home for her. 
she went from where she was last seen in front of the Dairy Queen to her home. She put out purple bows along the way. It took Jerry less than 12 minutes to make it home. A cross sits on the side of the road on the northbound side of I-495, near where Teresa's body was left. It also holds a Bible verse, Leviticus 24:17. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Jerry Hude and her family will never stop their quest for justice for Teresa Corley. If you have any information about Teresa's murder, you can call 1-800-MA-SOLVE. That's 1-800-423-8477. And you can call anonymously. Okay, guys, thanks for joining us again on Dealing Justice. Now, this case has a lot to unpack. So we're just going to dive in and talk about what happened to Teresa Corley that night. And some of the suspects at that are out there. I think there's so many weird things that happened that night. It was back in 1978. So part of this may be that information, again, there weren't cell phones. And that really, I think, stops a lot of information from flowing in from back in the day. But there was a lot of strange things that happened that night. But the great thing is that Bob Ward just so happens to be such a huge help Lori, I know that you found Bob and just the coincidence that he knew Teresa. And so how all of that started is pretty amazing. Yes, exactly. That he had that personal connection and he's just known in the community. He's been in that community for so many years and he's just a wealth of knowledge. And their series, New England's Unsolved, has been on their station since 1999. But really, all we have in this case, Jen, which is so hard because the police aren't talking, as always, we've reached out to the Massachusetts State Police and have yet to hear back as the time of this recording. But again, all even Jerry really has is, you know, her talking, what people are saying. And you just don't know when you have this many people involved or somehow know what's going on, who's really telling her the truth and who's just trying to point fingers at who? You know, that's what we really have going on here. So there's a lot of rumors. He said, she said, you know, but Jerry has, man, she has not stopped. Now, I will say, too, if you want to know a lot more information, if you go to Jerry's Facebook page, her Facebook group is called Justice for Teresa Corley. For a case that happened in 1978, it shows how much this community is impacted by this. It is a very active Facebook page. So there's a lot more information and details on there. Now, let's can we take it back? I don't think we've really talked about this before, but back in the 70s, a drunk girl trying to make it home and sexually assaulted. What comes to your mind with all of that back in the 70s? You and I had this conversation about how different it is with victim shaming nowadays. Exactly. And also, you know, just a woman just walking home and being drunk. I mean, everybody at 19, she was of the legal drinking age and everybody has kind of found themselves in some type of situation like that in one way or another. And even Alana, the friend who refused to give her a ride home, she had no way of knowing that her friend would end up dead. No, and well, and here's the thing is, a lot of this information is coming off of what people have said about this case. And we knew going in that when you do a case from 1978 that you have to really kind of dig in and find out whatever information that you can. So these are all things that people have told us from that night. So starting at the bar that night, we do not know why Teresa got upset and why she left, but it sounds pretty typical to me of something that would happen at 19 when you're drunken at a bar. I'm mad. 
mad at my boyfriend and I'm drunk and I'm mad. So I want to go home and I want to go home now. Now, Lana or whoever she asks is probably having a good time. And if Teresa was fired up, which the truck driver that, you know, said that she was, if she was fired up, you know, her friends may have been like, yo, you need to chill out. I don't want to leave just yet. Exactly. And Alana, we reached out to too and had yet to hear back from. And Pam has passed away. So there's really no way of getting information. So you have where Teresa left that night, the bar, and here's where things get crazy. She's completely drunk. Here's where the suspects come in. So Lori, what's, let's talk about those. Okay. So, and as we know, she's walking home. She starts walking home in this group of men in the car and Jerry had named them all. I might not be able to name them all right this minute, but apparently one in the car, name is Mike said, hey, guys, I know this girl walking down the road. I want to have sex with her. And this is, again, what was been told to Jerry. Nothing official. This is what's been told to Jerry by different people. They pick her up, and that's where they go back to the apartment. And then that's where the things that she said that their sexual assault had taken place. So there's these guys. And from what I gather, now, she was found at 530 in the morning with a male shoe on and a female shoe. And they're not sure if she's wearing the male jeans that were found next to her body or not. But that sounds like somebody who scrambled to get out of that home, drunk and stupid and, you know, kind of doing whatever, had something tragic happen and just needed to get out of there. Right. So the suspects say they picked up, this is what we're gathering, that they had picked up and gave Teresa a ride home. However, they ended up back at the apartment. The guys are saying that she came back willingly And then one of them even came forward and said that, or told Jerry, I don't want to say came forward, told Jerry that Teresa said, if you'll take me home now, I have sex with all of you guys. And that was not Teresa. She had two boyfriends like that the family knew of it. You know what I mean? Like she was not a promiscuous young woman. Right. So those guys are saying, hey, we took her back to our apartment. She initiated sex. They did not come forward saying who had sex with her. Did one of them? did all three all three of them so the rumor was that they had all sexually assaulted her of course they say that it was willingly now except for mike now mike the one who initially said i want that i know that girl i want to pull over and have sex with her the rumor there was that um he was being so obnoxious with when they brought her into the apartment that they actually kicked him out and he was banging on the apartment door and they wouldn't let him back in Now, again, rumors say later on that maybe he was trying to protect Teresa, but we really just don't know. Either way, Mike was not a part of that at that point because they kicked him out because they said he was being too obnoxious. Let's just cut to what we do now. Teresa leaves the apartment again. She's got one of her shoes and one male shoe on. She's drunk, and I can only imagine what this 19-year-old girl looked like on the side of the road. I think anybody who's had a cocktail or five in their life knows maybe where this night went, what she must have been going through for her to put that on and get out of the house, like you said, in a, in a hurry. So the next thing you know, she's seen hitchhiking on the side of the road. Now, she luckily, these two truck drivers drive by. So the first one picks her up and says, hey, I'm going into work. He's in his own car. Mm-hmm, his private vehicle. He's coming from home to work. He picks her up and says, hey, I'm going to work. I can't take you after that, but I'll take you as far as my job and drop you off at the company gate. So he does that. Now, again, she's still a wreck. She gets out of the car, hangs out by the gate hitchhiking. 
now truck driver or delivery driver, sorry, number two is leaving work and sees her. And again, like we talked about the company policies, like every company policy that you're not supposed to pick up hitchhikers. But he says that just seeing her. He knew she was in distress and was like, this woman needs help. So I think the running theme here is that everybody that saw her and people know drunk people, but I think people that saw her knew that something bad had happened that night. So he picks her up and says, hey, I'm not supposed to, but this woman looks like she needs help. While she, he, he agrees to give her a ride into town and then she confides in him that she was sexually assaulted and he could smell the alcohol on her breath. So he was like, he knew something was wrong. So this guy sounds like he was being nice and took her to the police department and dropped her off, you guys, right outside of the police department. And she never went in. That was at around 5 a.m. And then she was last seen at 5.30 by the Dairy Queen, which is like right near the police. You know, it Mm -hmm. it shouldn't have taken somebody a half an hour to walk there, but that just shows her state of mind. Right. So Jerry said, Lori, how long should it have taken somebody to walk from the police station to the Dairy Queen? That was like a two minute walk. Okay. so and then this was a 30 minute time span. And then that was the last time anybody saw her. Now, she should have been to walk from the police station to home. Well, then from Dairy Queen to home was about 12 minutes. So if it's two minutes from there, 14, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? So from the police station to home, I mean, you guys were talking less than 15 minutes. It it wasn't a, a huge walk, but she just goes missing. And so don't love to do this, but let's talk about some of the theories that are happening. We talked about the suspects that were at the apartment and that she claimed sexually assaulted her. So the theory is that, like Lori had said, that these guys start panicking. Oh no, what did we do? You have the odd man out. You know, did he go back to try and pick her up? Maybe that odd man out who did not sexually assault her was actually the one who made that call, stay with us, under the name of John Burlington. So you remember we told you guys, somebody called in, said he was a businessman, and he stopped on the side of the road to pee and found her body. That does not make sense. Her body was not right next to the road. Her body was was not where you could see it right from the road. And his name never showed up in any searches, and they could not find this man again. Police actually did say that they assumed it was a local man, and for whatever reason said that they were going to Connecticut, which is south, which would have been south on 495, not north. So this things just didn't add up and they don't know why, but it was somebody they don't know. So it's either somebody completely random picked up Teresa, which nobody today has come forward to say whether it was somebody random to say whether it was those guys that were in the car. So, you know, even though it's from 1978, obviously her her family and her sister is still hurting. And so that's why we bring you guys these stories is that even though it was a long time ago, Um, somebody out there knows something. Exactly, because there's a lot of people and a lot of people who have grown up in Bellingham and have been there, you know, and are still there to this day, just like Jerry is. Another one I wanted to mention was that random local man who ran into the police station that day before the body was actually even located right after the police, you know, were dispatched to go find it. His name was Ronnie. Now, he was related to one of the men in the apartment that night And there's a lot of stories with him that maybe people locally may know. Again, he's passed away, so Jerry can't ask him. But there was a lot of information with him that seems a little suspect as far as 
again, theories we don't like to talk about, but there's not a lot of information for us to go into with that. But he was the one that one has been named that he's been the one to walk into the police station to find out frantically if that was Teresa's body that was found or not. I feel like we have covered all our bases on this. There's a lot of random information. There's the guy who ran into the police station. And then there are the three guys who, you know, it was rumored sexually assaulted uh, Teresa that night. So if you guys know anything, please come forward. One little thing can change this entire cold case and the outcome for this family. And the community. It's apparent by how active that Facebook page is on this cold case that people want this solved. My heart goes out to the people who don't have an advocate, like the Jerry's, like the Ada Martins, like the others that we've talked about, about Cindy, Tracy Nelson's sister. Like we could just go on and on with the list um, of these people that have had an advocate for them. It would be a, a different place if it wasn't for those advocates and people coming forward. So thank you guys for joining us. We know that this was one of those cases that has a million twists and turns, but we appreciate you guys and we're glad you are here with us. And we will see you on the next episode. And we want to thank Liz Morgan PR for being absolutely amazing and sponsoring us. Liz Morgan PR is a boutique public relations firm specializing in media relations, event planning, and communication strategy. Founder, president, and friend Liz Morgan is a creative, award-winning public relations professional with one goal in mind, getting her clients buzz. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Healing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends to subscribe. No matter how many years have passed, Teresa Corley deserves justice, and her family deserves answers. If you have any information, please reach out to the appropriate law enforcement agency. You can learn even more about Teresa's case at Justice for Teresa Corley, Bellingham, MA, 1978, on Facebook. Dealing Justice is in its second season, and Lori and Jen continue to highlight cases that need the spotlight. If you want more Dealing Justice in your life, be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. I'll drop links to Justice for Teresa and Dealing Justice podcast in the show notes. Huge shout out once again to the amazing ladies at Dealing Justice for sharing this episode with us. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 